Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addictions, Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is January 7th of 2016. It's a whole new year. Um, tonight, our guest is Annie Grace. She is the author of This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol. We're going to bring her on in a second. First, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are free of charge. Layla support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. We're going to bring our guest on right now. Hello, Annie. How are you doing this evening? Hi, good, good. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. I see your book is selling very well. It's currently actually number one in alcoholism on Amazon in both print book and in Kindle. It was very impressive. Uh, So tell us a little bit about the book, uh, This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol. What got you interested in writing this uh, to begin with? Yeah, thanks. I I mean, it was really, to be honest, my own journey. And I reached a point in my life where, you know, I think drinking, I hate to say it, but I think it really snuck up on me. And it was very corporate-based. I was having (laughs) a lot of success in the corporate world, and with that came a lot of happy hours. And um, pretty soon, it wasn't just at work that I was drinking, but it was at home. And I developed a pretty good emotional dependence, if nothing else, definitely believed that I needed alcohol, not only to network corporately, but just to relax at the end of the day with all the stress I was dealing with. And it reached a point about 10 years of heavy drinking later where I was sat there in an airport with a hangover, having just drank two screwdrivers in the morning, and I was in Heathrow Airport, and really realized that this wasn't doing me any favors anymore. Like, I didn't like this. And so, you know, I was most people think, okay, well, I'll just cut back. And I didn't find just cutting back to be easy. Um, I found it to be really difficult. And so I started to research why that was. And that really took me on a journey of um, journaling for about a year and a half. And the result of the journaling and my research combined and a lot of reading that I did um, is this book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, the research shows about half of people that overcome an alcohol dependence do so by quitting and about half by cutting back. So they're both really good solutions that work very well for different people. So we always encourage people to choose the one that will work best for themselves. Um, Tell me a little bit about um, what your program is, what's involved in this. Yeah, absolutely. And and the book doesn't dictate that you have to quit. I mean, I'm really a big believer in no rules. I'm someone personally who, if you put a rule on me, like if I'm going to tell you, okay, Ken, I'm never going to have another drink again in my life, that's going to just make my skin crawl and, you know, immediately make the rebel in me, you know, feel very upset. And so that's not how I choose to look at it. Um, Right now I don't drink because I don't want to drink. And I think that's kind of how the Naked Mind program works. So what I've done is I used a um, technique called liminal thinking. And liminal is just the word for in between your (laughs) conscious mind and your subconscious mind. So, you know, 
right above subliminal, and it's the place where you can kind of connect the two. So what liminal thinking does is I realized pretty quickly that I had this really strong conscious desire to be drinking less, but I had this overwhelming unconscious belief that alcohol was completely key to my life. So I believed it was key to, you know, socializing. I believed it was really key to career success. I believed it was key to relaxing. And so it didn't matter if I was going to consciously, you know, say I'm going to abstain from drinking. It just felt like torture. I mean, it felt like, okay, I'm not doing something that I, I want to be doing. There's this overwhelming desire. And my research showed me that your unconscious mind is really responsible for a huge portion of your desires. Like we don't consciously choose who to fall in love with. And so this conflict, what I call between my conscious desire to drink less and my far more powerful unconscious desire to drink and the belief that it was really key to my life, I kind of attack that with liminal thinking. So throughout the book, it's kind of organized into narratives and then interspersed with what I call liminal points, which is where you kind of dig down and say, okay, alcohol tastes great. Well, let's really look at that. Why do you think that is? Where did it come from? Let's compare it to reality. You know, alcohol relaxes me. Well, let's compare that to um, my experience, to what, what really the research shows, et cetera. And so through that process, by the end of the book, you end up in a place where you just don't want to drink. And um, your kind of unconscious has kind of gone back, what I call it in the book, is to a place kind of a naked mind, if you will. It's just this place where before you ever had a drink, you know, because when I was 15, 16, before I ever drank anything, I didn't want to do it. I didn't, I didn't desire it. I didn't crave it. And then um, by the end of the book, you're kind of back at that place. Not saying it's that easy. I think maintaining that mentality, especially in our culture that really talks about um, how busy, you know, how important alcohol is to our, our lives, I think is, is kind of the trick. But gives you a leg up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of people say that their culture is very uh, favorable to alcohol, but our culture is also very unfavorable to alcohol. Do you, do you see that there's a very prohibitionist mindset that also runs through the United States? Yeah, it's interesting. We have such a strange relationship with alcohol in the States. It's, you know, in a lot of European cultures, we don't have this kind of juxtaposition where we either love it via happy hour or hate it with, you know, the really anti-alcohol groups that are out there and very vocal. And I think that it's, you know, it, it is really um, fickle in the States, our relationship with alcohol. It's a very interesting dichotomy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably part of the reason why drinking was interesting to me long before I drank because, you know, I was rebelling against this very prohibitionist mentality. Well, my parents were both uh, religious teetotalers, as were all four grandparents. So, so much for the theory of familial transmission. (laughs) Yeah, I think that um, it is interesting, and I do think it kind of does do some generational things like that. Like, I have a good friend and her parents were just really heavy drinkers, and she vividly remembers them being heavy drinkers, so she went the other way to where she will only have a beer, and that's where she stops, because she never wants her kids to experience, you know, her heavily intoxicated. So, it, yeah, I, I agree in the sense that you can't really say that 
our parents are responsible or our society is responsible or our, you know, our culture is responsible because there are so many different things that really contribute to anybody's individual journey, and it is so individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's been a lot of research that shows uh, when parents are moderate, the, the children tend to be moderate, but when children, when the parents are at either extreme the children are more likely to go to one extreme or the other, either to emulate or to rebel, and they get a lot fewer moderate drinkers when the uh, parents are either very heavy drinkers or complete teetotalers. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And for me, that was the case with, like, sugar and meat, because my parents, like, I was forced into vegetarianism <laughs> until I actually <laughs> could try meat on my own, and then... You know, when I was in college, my diet consisted of basically candy and fast food because I was just so rebelling against this lifestyle of no sugar and no meat that I had grown up with. And, you know, I still have a hard time with my parents are when it comes to food, and I think that's really reflective of how it can be with alcohol as well. Yeah, that's something in your author bio. I think it says you grew up in a cabin without electricity. Well, what was that like? Tell me about that. Well, it's so interesting because for me, I mean, I felt like it was relatively normal. Um, but, of course, then going away to college and stuff, you quickly realize that it's not normal at all. But basically the cabin's on the backside of a ski mountain in Colorado mountains. It's about 10,500 feet, so it's just below Timberline. And in the winter, we couldn't even get there via road because the road shut down, so we had to snowmobile. And when I was really little, my parents, um, you know, they – my dad grew up in the Bronx. He kind of had this very fast-paced lifestyle and just kind of went and became a hermit in the mountains. And then my mom had done the same thing growing up in Massachusetts, and they met on this mountain. And so they'd given up pretty much all of their possessions. They didn't own anything with a motor. So when I was little, they actually had a cross-country ski to get home in the winter. And we ended up just spending tons of time just at this cabin. And it was, you know, it's very small. It's about maybe 250 square feet. And, um, yeah, there's a spring and an outhouse, so kind of have to go outside to go to the bathroom, which was terrifying as a young child. But, I mean, I feel really lucky now. I was probably a little bit resentful when I was in school and, you know, how kids can be and whatnot. And it was, I was very different, especially because in a ski town, everybody, I mean, it was the town of Aspen and everybody's very wealthy. And so having this very Buddhist-like upbringing with no possessions in the middle of nowhere and then growing up in one of the glitziest towns in America was very, uh, again, an interesting dichotomy. But, um, yeah, I think it was a very unique way to grow, grow up, although I wouldn't have told you that at the time. I, I didn't really know any better, to be honest. What, were your parents religious or what uh, motivated them? Did they just decide they didn't like possessions? Yeah, I think my dad, I mean, he's always just kind of been into simple living and he, you know, mindfulness. He grew up Jewish, um, was bad mitzvah, and then kind of left the, I mean, he still, he doesn't identify it as a religion, more as a race. Um, and mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. my mom toured across the country in a VW van, kind of following the dead and whatnot, and found herself living on the back of the mountain in Aspen and, you know, both kind of just had this very hippie lifestyle and we're happy with it still still are <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, my parents were like the opposite of hippies, but they were very fundamentalist Christian farmers. So, uh, in a lot of, there was a lot of similarities. We did have electricity and things with motors, uh, lots of tractors and lots of hard work. And, uh, oh, that's what they believed in was hard work. And that's not what I believe in. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. At least not hard physical labor. I like to use my brain uh, a lot. It's, it's my muscles. <laughs> Absolutely. But, yeah, it was totally isolated. Um, and, I mean, they were real extremists even for that area. And I was way out. You know, I had to ride the bus an hour to get to the nearest school, which was, you know, way out in the middle of nowhere anyway. So I was very isolated, but I did not have this contact with the city um well i bought a lot of books through mail order so that's where i got you know diverted from my path of my parents yeah it sounds really similar i think it is interesting this idea of extremism and how that can really influence people to be rebels in a way and i think that's you know it's a big reason that i try to live the life that i've chosen without alcohol without rules is because as soon as, you know, the rules really, I think, just invoke this feeling, at least for me, of answering to something that I can't necessarily justify, you know, and I I really feel that I need to be, I don't know, I like the idea of doing what I want to be doing and, you know, being able to convince myself um, through liminal thinking that I don't want to be drinking has been really liberating and really freeing. And, yeah, so I, I think it's really worked for me and avoiding those extremes because I maybe they work for some people, but for me I feel like there's kind of danger in extremes to some degree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, myself, I drink one day a week, and the other six days, I really don't want to. Actually, I don't even think about it. Um, I mean, initially making the change, of course, it was very different, but these days – Many years later, after having established the pattern, it's like, I have too many things to do to really waste time uh, drinking, drinking a lot. It's such a cool idea, though, because I think that what you've done with that, and I, I talk about it in the book, and I talk about this idea of um, decision-making and how it takes mental energy. And one decision makes, you know, takes as much mental energy if it's a big decision or a little decision. So if you're making, you know, if you're not putting yourself kind of with these guardrails or these rules, then you're facing every day with a thousand decisions, you know, like what am I going to drink next? How many am I going to drink today? How many am I going to drink in a few hours? What am I going to drink? And these thousand decisions, I mean, that was what I found really exhausting. Whereas, you know, this idea of, okay, one day a week I'm going to drink, then the rest of the week you're kind of free from making that decision because you've already made it. And so you just have this, freedom of you're not sitting there weighing the options i mean for me the weighing the option bit of okay is this one too many is the next one too many that was what really created a lot of internal struggle for me and um that constantly weighing this decision it was just i found it really exhausting but i think whether it's a single decision just not to do it or a decision to drink one day a week two days a week or you know whatever, putting those limits and then sticking to it, I think there's kind of freedom in that, if, if that makes sense. Mm, absolutely. Um, 
we encourage people, you know, to make a written plan, you know, and mm. uh, one of the ways to do it is to, uh, you know, write out your plan for each week. So, uh, you know, at the start of the week, you can write down, okay, uh, Monday, I want no drinking. Tuesday, I'm at my friend's birthday party. I want to drink two to be sociable, but no more. And then don't want to drink the Wednesday, Thursday, uh, Friday. Then I want to cut loose and drink a 12-pack. And you know, people can write out their number for the week and then see, you know, how they did with it. But you know, then they've got a plan in place for the week. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, that seems like a really really good approach. I think that if you um, if you find yourself doing that and then not being able to keep it or not being able to stick with it and, and really find yourself in a place where, you know, you feel like that's taking more than it's giving, um, I think that, you know, then you just need to reevaluate it equally. If you find that you're sticking with it and you're doing it and you're making improvements, I mean, I think like you say in kind of your your overall philosophy, improvement is improvement. And I feel like that's something that we get not, I I hate to use the word wrong, but it's something that's a bit terrifying in our culture when you're someone questioning your drinking, you really see it as an all or nothing thing, you know, and I, I can speak from my experience of, I started questioning my drinking about six years before I stopped drinking. And it was so terrifying that question because it wasn't that I could maybe control it. It wasn't that maybe I could make a plan. None of those options are mainstream. And so it was really, okay, if I have a question, that means I'm going to have to quit. And that idea was so terrifying. That means I was going to have to kind of ostracize myself from my friends who are all drinkers. I was going to have to undergo this whole entire lifestyle change. I was going to have to, you know, deprive myself and feel like I was going to be missing out for the rest of my life. And that fear made me put off questioning it and made me, like, literally shut the questions down as soon as they arose in my mind. Whereas if there was a much more moderate approach about improvement is improvement, you know, that wouldn't have given me fear. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, I had never really heard about your approach, which I think is quite cool, but, um, and I think that's true for a lot of people, because until you start to say, okay, I do have, you know, something that I want to deal with and something that I want to change, you aren't really doing the research, and you aren't really seeking it out, so what you know about treatment is really just what's mainstream, and the mainstream Mm -hmm. approach is this all-or-nothing black-and-white approach that creates a huge amount of fear for somebody just wondering you know, if they happen, you know, what their life would look like drinking a bit less, you know, and we almost discourage the questioning, which is so heartbreaking. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And, you know, I didn't invent this at all. I stole it all from needle exchange programs, uh, which is where I learned all about harm reduction because I said, you know, I I, I've not done heroin myself, but uh, I, I, learned about harm reduction. I learned it exists. And I said, I got to learn more about this. I started volunteering in the needle exchange in Minneapolis. And, you know, when you do needle exchange, you tell people, you know, know, if they start shooting their heroin with clean needles every day instead of uh, sharing, or even if they switch to using clean needles, most of the time it's like, 
wow, you did a really great improvement because you're not sharing needles anymore. Uh, and it's not like, well, you're really terrible because you're shooting heroin. No, you're doing really great because you're using clean needles now. You're bringing in the dirty needles off the street. You're getting them, uh, you know, out of circulation. You do, you did a wonderful thing. So thank you for bringing in the clean for the used needles, and thank you for using the clean ones. And well, that was a big thing to wrap my mind around, but it totally changed my attitude. And as I said, I stole it and I applied it to alcohol. That's so beautiful because I I feel so much the same way, and I write in the book a bit about this idea of relapse, which is a word I didn't even want to include in the book because it's such a negative word. Um, and you know, everything that you do that improves, you're on your journey to getting better. And once you've kind of made that choice that you want to get better, you know, the tools and the resources start appearing, and that's this concept of positive reinforcement for the little things instead of a fear-based, because fear isn't a lasting motivator. It's terrifying and it's soul-poisoning, but it's not a lasting motivator. But reward, and I mean, you can even see this in parenting children, right? Like if you are in this fear-based parenting thing, they might comply to what you want them to do, but their personality may be distorted later on, and there's so many negative things that come from that, including, in fact, addiction. But if you parent in a way that's really rewarding positive behavior, you light up a child. I mean, you make, you make their entire future brighter. And, you know, for us to treat people who are addicted with this, if you're not doing it my way or if you're not doing this perfectly, you know, then you're going to pay the consequences. I mean, it's, it's really sad. And, and what you've just said about you're making this improvement in your life, this is an amazing thing. I mean, that sows the seed for change. That sows the seed for someone even believing that they can change because they've suddenly seen that they, it's positive, you know, and it really, that positive kind of flame towards change needs to be nurtured. I, I think that's just brilliant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and you see that all the time in needle exchange programs. You get the, the most difficult clients, the least engaged um, but, you know, they say, well, the needles are free. I might as well come in. And, you know, after uh, three months, six months, all of a sudden they decide, well, I want to get engaged in more services. And, you know, you never told them that there's any requirement because there's no requirement to, to do anything except, you know, just get what you want. We, you know, offer people what they want, and people would rather use a clean needle anyway. And, you know, just the fact that you are – Helping to supply people with something that they want instead of trying to push something on them against their will. And pretty soon they start saying very frequently, wow, maybe I can make some more changes. And I think that there's something to that, too, in the sense of, yeah, it doesn't, we've, we painted this picture, especially with alcohol, that, and again, I'll speak from my own personal experience, that achieving, you know, quitting is hard. And if you ask 10 people on the street, you know, what do you think someone, you know, would quitting drinking be hard? You know, a daily drinker, for instance, people say yes. Like they imagine it to be so hard that they wouldn't even want to try it. You know, and that was the <laughs> where I lived. I lived in a state of mind that I imagined that the pain involved in quitting 
um, and the deprivation and the missing out was going to be so difficult that I wouldn't even want to try it. And I also imagined that quitting was the only way. And both of those things, you know, were wrong, I think, because I think that, you know, it isn't actually that hard. And if we start to give people the hope that it isn't that hard and that you can make really positive changes and you can see, you know, really lasting things that are positive in your life, um, it's half the battle to just believe that you can do something, you know, that in itself really can progress you so far down the path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, the mainstream, of the most popular mainstream approach doesn't say it's hard. They say it's impossible. It is mm. impossible for you to quit on your own. You must go to these meetings. You must go to rehab. Um, otherwise, you will die. Your addiction will progress and you will die. And you must go to AA every night of the week because that is your only salvation. You cannot do anything on your own. And that is a message that is throughout the media and everywhere, and it's completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read your, um, I was reading some stuff on your site today, and I had included the same research in my book, but the the three-fourths of all people with alcohol dependence, you know, overcame it. And of the people who overcame it, three-quarters of them did it completely by themselves, you know, and I'm a testament to that, obviously, and I'm hoping that this book will help you know, kind of shed light on the tools that I used, but it was, it was an individual journey of my own. And um, in my family, just to give you some background, my dad was a really heavy drinker, smoked a ton of cigarettes, completely spontaneously recovered. You know, one day just said, this is not what I want to be doing and, and made his decision. And I guess spontaneous is probably, it's the word that's used in the studies, but it does take, you know, you have to really know yourself and know that you want change and, and make some, some clear decisions. So it's not as if a lightning bolt comes down and suddenly you're, you're just free from your addiction or whatever. But, um, and my brother is the exact same way and his wife is the same way and my other brother is the same way. And none, none of these people drink at all anymore and we were all very heavy drinkers at one point in our life. And I was the last, I was the last man standing with the only person drinking wine at the holidays um, until a few years ago. But they all really on their own without any treatment really, you know, made this decision for their lives. And I think it's absolutely true. It's, it's, not, um, it's not scary either. And I think that's the other really beautiful part of it is that I had this idea that I was going to be living a deprived life and I was going to be missing out on having fun and I wasn't going to be able to relax as easily. And none of those things I found to be true. I mean, I've actually found some of the opposite things to be true. In my experience, I've dealt with anxiety and depression for since I was 19 years old. And um, getting stopping drinking, finally able to get off the two antidepressants that I'd been on for, I mean, these two specific ones I'd been on for more than four years. And I was able to get off of those because of how much my perspective changed and my feeling of self-worth changed. And I think, you know, for me it was about stopping, but it wasn't necessarily about stopping because stopping is the only way. It was more about the fact that when I was drinking, I felt like I was, I was one of those people who I would have made my plan and then I would have bashed my plan. So I would have said, okay, I'm going to only have two tonight. And then I would have went and, you know, not been able to count my drinks the next morning when I woke up because I wouldn't have been able to remember. And so it was, for me, 
I just lived with this really constant sense of self-loathing of, okay, why am I so weak? Why can't I just control this? What is my problem? Why can't I be, you know, just normal about this, blah, blah, blah. And so I really had this very um, low opinion of myself. And when I finally kind of was out of that, my opinion of myself really changed. And it was through a really positive course of action, not a negative fear-based course of action. And then when my opinion of myself changed, so many things started to change. Like I really got myself out of those negative, depressive thought patterns that had been taken so much from me. And yeah, I mean, I've been, I'm happier than I've ever been. And I laugh more than I laughed and I relax much better than I used to relax. And so I, I want to kind of, I mean, I wish I had some megaphone to sort of say like, look, you know, it, not only is it not as hard as we paint it out to be, but it's not miserable. And, you know, being in control and being um, really not drinking as much as I was drinking has been so positive for me. And I, you know, I, I like that message because for me it's really about what I've gained rather than what I've given up because, yeah, I don't, I don't think about drinking anymore, and, and that's such a cool place. So how much effort do you think it was uh, initially to make the change? Uh, was it uh, very easy? Was it a fair amount of effort? Was it a lot of effort? Tell me about that. Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. So there's a doctor, Dr. John Sarno. You may have heard of him, but I had really bad back pain for years. And um, my dad was riding up the gondola one day when he was skiing, and this he was telling this guy on the gondola about my back pain, and he recommended this book by Dr. John Sarno. And in the beginning of the book, he pretty much says, look, a lot of pain that people experience is actually in their mind. And things like this, like you have a baby that's screaming, and you're a mom, and you are very frustrated with that baby. You won't allow yourself to consciously feel frustrated with your child, because you don't that wouldn't be in sync with who you believe yourself to be. You believe yourself to be this good person. So you repress these feelings, even though they're completely natural. You won't allow them to enter your consciousness. So by repressing them, they have to find a different home, and that can be through back pain. And so he says, you can understand that theory and say, okay, that might be true, but it's not going to make your back pain go away. I'm going to have to take you through 350 pages of my research and my proof in order to show you that this is true. And by doing that, I will actually dig in and change how your unconscious perceives your pain, and by the end of the book, you will be pain-free. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to give this a go. I read this book, and Ken, I kid you not, the end of the book, I picked up my kid, which I had not been able to do in over a year, and swung him around, and it was my husband was like, okay, don't hurt yourself. Are you okay? And I'm like, no, no, really, I'm okay. And I have not, I've been completely pain-free for four years now, and it's been an amazing journey. And so when I realized that I had this conscious desire to drink less, but I still wanted alcohol, and I didn't get it, like I didn't understand why that conflict existed in myself, I actually got in touch with the author, and he's, um, he's no longer taking on new clients or anything, but I got in touch with some people who continue his work, and I said, with this, with this concept of treating the unconscious, would it work for addiction? What about bringing your unconscious mind back to the place where your conscious mind is? So if my conscious mind wants to be drinking less, can I bring my unconscious mind along on that journey? And um, Steve Ozanich, 
was who I spoke to. He's an author of a few books, and he said, absolutely, Dr. Sarno has always said this would work for addiction. There's no doubt in my mind, um, absolutely. And so I started that journey of looking into what it would take to change my unconscious and really studying the unconscious. The unconscious learns in pictures and feelings and emotions and fact, and it works when we're asleep and it tries to, you know, it's really logical, um, but it doesn't deal in language. So it was kind of this really interesting thing. And I journaled and I researched and I really worked on changing my unconscious beliefs about alcohol. And I remember one day, about a year into this journey, I'd pretty much written the book because in all these journals, and I remember walking out of my office and telling my husband, and I said, hey, if you want to get drunk with me again, tonight's the night, because after tonight I'm not drinking anymore. And you could have, I mean, the look on his face, I wish I would have videotaped it, because it was just unreal. And he looks at me like, what What are you talking about? And sure enough, we had a bottle of wine, two bottles of wine. I got drunk. I woke up with a hangover. And I haven't drank since because I just I didn't want it after that. So my journey was a lot of effort before I stopped drinking. And then mm-hmm. it's been really like when I knew, I knew. And letting it go has been um, really pretty easy. And I hate to say that because it makes it sound easy. But it, it has been kind of easy for me in a way because I really did, I believe, change how my unconscious mind views alcohol and with, without desire, there isn't any temptation. And without temptation, I'm not, I'm not having to exercise willpower. And so I'm not faced with a desire to drink. And that makes it really easy not to. Okay. But there was a year's worth of effort preceding this. Yes, absolutely. So, Huge amount of effort so, in research, which I hope to, you know, condense for people in the book, which is what's been working for people by reading the book, is that's kind of all the all the information you need to change how you view alcohol. And then, you know, I get letters pretty much every day, people reading the book and be like, wow, it's like a new world, like I just feel free. So, um, but yes, there was a huge amount of effort preceding the decision. Mm-hmm. So... The, uh, well, tell me more about uh, what's involved with changing your unconscious, some more particulars. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So your unconscious, I mean, anything in your unconscious can really be exposed and changed when you bring it into conscious thought. And I think that's the biggest thing is that you have these beliefs and they're things that, you know, you know to be true. Like, you know the sky is blue and you know that alcohol relaxes you and you you know um, these things to be true. And if you look at it in, in this way, like we're here in America and we've grown up with these, you know, different set of religions and politics and everything else. And so we're living in this perception of reality that is very different than someone who's perhaps grown up in the Middle East, right? But if you would, mm-hmm. and it's how wars start, right? We think these things are true because we believe them to be true, and they think these things are true because they believe them to be true. And so those things are really derived, our beliefs, what we know to be true, from, you know, the experience and observations we've had, and then the assumptions that we draw, the conclusions, and then it really formulates in these beliefs. And so if you believe something to be true, you then create sort of a self-sealing bubble of logic around it. So I would do that in the sense of, um, you know, I believed alcohol was key to my life, so I had this plaque on my wall, and it was, you know, 
no one ever started a fun story with a salad or whatever it said. And it was just really self-sealed, this belief that alcohol is really vital to my life. Um, and so to change that, you know, it can be particularly, it can be difficult to change that because they are, they're so ingrained. Um, and to change that, you really just have to dig into those. So it's really digging into, you know, how exactly did I come to this belief? What, where, what were my experiences? What were the conclusions I drew? What were the assumptions I made? And do those, in fact, stack up to, to reality? So if we take, you know, alcohol is relaxing, for instance. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I started working. I'd go out with coworkers. We'd have a few drinks. I'd see everybody out around me relax. So I was observing people relaxing. Um, Alcohol definitely slows down your mind, so you think less when you're drinking. So I'd feel as though I was relaxing. Definitely concluded, yes, it relaxes me. Okay, that's great. And then I formed this very deep unconscious belief that alcohol was really key to relaxing after a hard day. Um, And then if you compare that against reality, and I'll just give you one of the examples in the book, but they did a study on rats where they gave two sets of rats they put them in stressful situations. And prior to the stressful situations, one set of rats, they gave a moderate amount of alcohol on a regular basis for 30 days. And one set of rats, they didn't. And then they put these rats that were exposed to alcohol into a situation that you know, was purposely stressful. And they put the rats that weren't, and they monitored how they dealt with the stress that was coming at them. And the rats that weren't exposed to alcohol were able to deal with the stress on a much better level. They had fewer physical reactions to the stress. They were able to navigate through things that were stressful easier. And, you know, they were just, they just dealt with the stress. Their heart rates didn't go up. And, and the rats that were exposed to alcohol on a regular basis dealt with the stress in a much worse way. And so, like, when we compare, so in the book, really, I'll take you through, okay, why do you believe it's relaxing? And I take you through all of those different reasons conclusions, et cetera, and really based on my own experience, but then drawing from the experience of I had 10,000 pre-readers of the book really fed back their experiences as well. So it was kind of a takes a village sort of book. And then we compare it to some of these scientific studies or just some logic exercises to say, okay, is that really true? And then, you know, another one with relaxing that I think is really poignant. Um, For me, I would start to relax when I pulled the bottle out of the cabinet that's when I'd be like, okay, mm-hmm. I feel good. It was before I actually drank the wine. And, like, the yeah. idea that it relaxes me was so powerful that the wine, you know, and, and that just kind of, again, showed me, okay, is it really the liquid that is going to provide relaxation, or is it this idea that, okay, the end of the day is here, here's my ritual, I pulled the bottle out, I'm starting to feel better. Um, and so, yeah, so we just kind of dig into reality and then really it's about drawing your own conclusions at the end of each of those liminal points and saying okay does it really relax you and those exercises go through and and they just change your perception Hmm. do you have exercises in the book um i don't have exercises in the book i mean it's a lot of questions like a lot of reflection and i really recommend that people only read about a chapter a day because it's it's pretty heavy on the thinking um, but I do have an audio program on my website, and that has a workbook that's about 50 pages, and it has 
self-reflection questions kind of before, during, and after each of the audio um, audio podcasts or whatever you want to call them. And so, yeah, those definitely have exercises of, you know, observe exactly when you start to feel relaxed. Something like that would be a perfect exercise that's included in the workbook. Mm-hmm. Well, it's absolutely true that before you start relaxing way before you drink. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's anticipation. Your mind's already your mind is set for that. I mean, that's what the that's what the brain does. The brain uh, creates causality. It sees mm-hmm. different things and it creates causal links between them. And uh, I mean, this is just an automatic process. It's a subconscious process. It goes on with everything that we perceive. We build causal links between them. And uh, most of them are wrong, of course. Yeah, and I think, I mean, even, you know, the the release of the dopamine being released, we all know that, well, you know, because I, I've read some of your articles, but dopamine can get released before, just by seeing a glass of wine, just by seeing, you know, the liquor store and stuff. So there's a lot of things that happen in your brain um, when you've become addicted that, really, you know, it it becomes almost less sometimes about the actual substance and more about the circumstances surrounding the substance in some instances. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, that's... Well, I'm just going to go through this again, not to beat a dead horse, but, you know, that's what our brain does. It creates causal links. It, It is a survival mechanism because, you know... If uh, we didn't realize that when a building fell on you, you got killed, uh, we would not know to run away. You know, that's, a, that's an accurate causal link that the brain builds through observation. But, you know, we put, uh, to, our brain also puts together all kinds of uh, false hypotheses. You know, if we see uh, a bearded man, you know, hit somebody, we might put together something, all men with beards are, you know, violent. Well, that's not true, but, you know, that's the kind of links that our brain's building all the time. We've got to sort them out between the ones that are real and the ones that are not. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think that what I had done is I had built a lot of causal links that were not actually real around my relationship with alcohol. I mean, I was a really fun, loving person with a good sense of humor before I ever drank. But when I was deep into my drinking, I, like, I was so sure that my creativity came from drinking and that my success at work came from drinking. And, you know, I was so sure that, you know, my sense of humor came from drinking. And you'll be amused to know that I actually, I did this experiment. And it was about four months after I stopped drinking. And it was really because I I, I really wanted to approach this in the most scientific way I could. And I really wanted to understand exactly what I was giving up and exactly how it made me feel. And I knew that when I was drinking, you know, alcohol and any addictive substance, because when it leaves your substance, when it leaves, overstimulates kind of your pleasure center. And then when it leaves, it kind of brings you a bit lower. So just like sugar does, you know, you go up on a sugar high and then you come, you come down. And of course, alcohol has a huge amount of carbohydrates and sugar in it. And the same sort of thing happens where you go up and you come down and so it creates a craving for itself. And so I knew that that craving was part of, the pleasure I was receiving from drinking was just relieving that craving and relieving a craving. I mean, if you think about it, like you have an itch, 
it's okay at first, but then it can get really bad, and it can be the only thing you think about until you actually can scratch your itch. And so relieving the craving was a huge part of um, the pleasure that I was receiving from drinking. So about four months after I had stopped drinking, I, I wanted to evaluate as scientifically as I possibly could my own experience with drinking. So I set up my iPhone camera, and I locked myself in my room so that I didn't have any external things, because obviously if I would have gone out with friends, like it would have been really fun to be with friends, and then I couldn't tell what was fun, the alcohol or the friends. And I, um, I sat down in front of the camera and said, okay, this is me, it's 6 p.m., I'm going to pour my first glass of wine. And I proceeded to drink. I had two bottles of wine. I hadn't been drinking for four months, so I could only get through one before I was completely sloshed. And I filmed it all. And um, it was, oh, my gosh, so eye-opening. I, I, <laughs> I thought I was making these jokes on camera, and I thought I was hilarious. And I, I watched the video the next day, and I was not hilarious. And, um, and it was funny, too, because even just the feelings that I was feeling, I was really trying to be observant of how exactly this alcohol made me feel. And it felt like everything was getting fuzzy around the edges a bit, and it felt like things were not quite as real. And I had to focus a lot harder on whatever I was trying to do, whether it was reading or writing, because I only had me and myself in the room. Um, but I didn't. I didn't get joy from it. I didn't spontaneously start laughing from it. You know, I, um, and, and it was really eye-opening. And it, it really, in a way, that experiment really released me because I felt like, okay, I'm, there's nothing I'm missing. There's nothing in that bottle that I feel like I'm going to be missing. And so it, it made it, um, yeah, because you, you do question. I mean, we're in our society, and you see everybody out drinking and all everything on TV and, you are, you know, it can be like, okay, well, I must be missing out. If everybody loves to do this so much, I must be missing out. There must be something so amazing about it. And so I just felt like I had to prove it to myself. And, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to engage um, in creative writing quite a bit, you know, poetry in particular. And, you know, I would uh, write things down. I would keep a notebook by me. I keep a notebook by me all the time and write things down at any time including when I was drinking. Uh, but I noticed uh, there was, a, when I was drinking, you know, once in a while, um, I would come up with something that was really interesting. I think they floated up from my unconscious. But it was very early on, uh, you know, because I noticed that the more I would drink, the stupider it was, the thing, <laughs> stupider things would get. It was a very short point where, you know, something you know, might actually be released from the unconscious, but it wasn't, uh, you know, more than like 10 minutes duration. Uh, because, you know, I could watch and, you know, I could go back and reread the next day and, wow, this keeps getting stupider and stupider and the handwriting gets worse and worse <laughs> together with it. So, although once in a while something interesting popped up, it was not definitely not the muse uh, solely residing in the bottle for sure. Yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, I feel like, you know, that first 20 minutes of that rush that that comes, and I mean, some of it is because from what I understand, alcohol, it actually absorbs directly through your stomach into your bloodstream, so you don't even have to digest it at all. It just goes right into your blood and into your brain, and um, you, like, there's a rush. Like, there's, you can't deny that. I think the really thing that opened my eyes, similar to what you're saying, is that it went away pretty quickly. I mean, 20 minutes was really the max and maybe 10 minutes and then it kind of was gone 
And then I would keep drinking, chasing that rush. Like I would say, okay, well, the next glass of wine is going to give me back that, give me back that. And then suddenly, you know, I wasn't remembering the rest of my night. You know, and I, I understand that I'm not sure that I ever had a really full-on blackout, but I definitely have patches where, okay, how much, how many did I actually drink? I'm not sure anymore. I, I can't, I can't even track it because once I got a few in, you know, my sense of decision making just went away. And again, that's something, you know, in your writing, I was reading about the prefrontal cortex, and it's it's so true that you know it actually gets impaired. Um, that ability to make decisions for the long term, not only by drinking a lot over a long period of time, can result in kind of cumulative damage, but also just during that night, you know, your ability to make a decision. I mean, people don't generally get in their car saying, okay, I'm wasted, but I'm going to drink or drive anyway. It's, it's more of a, I don't know I'm as drunk as I am, and I'm getting in my car because I think I'm okay. Because your ability to judge how much you've had to drink kind of goes away after, at least for me, it was about two glasses of wine, and, and it just went away. So then <laughs> I no longer had the ability to, to judge how much I was drinking. Mm-hmm. Well, for many, uh, for decades and decades, and long before I created any harm reduction program, yeah, I just made the decision to myself after one drink, after any alcohol, just assume that you're completely incompetent and don't do anything that requires any competence. You know, so that was yeah. that has been my rule for decades. You know, so I don't worry about the going out and doing crazy things when I drink. Once I drink, I'm planted like solid. Uh, not going to move. Uh, I'm not going to engage in any behavior, even after you know one sip. It's, and that's so smart. I mean, that's just such a smart way to approach it. I feel like because then, you know, I think where the danger really comes is when we accidentally get ourselves in these situations. And you know, I can speak for myself as a a woman in college, right? And you go you don't have that sort of plan and where you're drinking is you're drinking in these really risky situations. And that is so scary. Whereas if you are like, I think you call it planned intoxication and then mm-hmm. your, your plan involves not getting in the car and not being around people who, you know, may be harmful to your physical body or, or something like that. And I think that if you have that type of foresight, I mean, I, I just think that's so smart. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't always have it. Have it. I mean, in my twenties, <laughs> I did some. Uh, you know, it, it took me a while to realize that this is stupid. You know, I remember, uh, you know, when I was about twenty-five, dead drunk, riding a bicycle down the street in Japan, I think crashing into the open gutter, and uh, <laughs> not not uh, not exactly the uh, brightest move, but uh, you know, after after. After a couple of those, I just said, you know, why not just decide before before you take first drink that, you know, after first drink, you will be incompetent, you will not be riding bicycles, you will not be sending emails, you will not be doing any of this shit. Just, uh, you know, as soon as you drink, yeah. you're done with all that. Do you find in, in your program, are mo- most people using... Or is it half and half, like you said in the beginning? And I guess my question is, are most people using the harm reduction, which you know I think is such a cool premise, as a step to complete abstinence, or do most people use it and then come to uh, moderation 
approach? Yeah, most people in our group are uh, doing a harm reduction. They are doing controlled drinking. They are not quitting completely. Um, and uh, uh, there's several reasons for that. Um, first, we, we are hard to find because, um, you know, we're not being broadcast on every TV show uh, like AA meetings. You know, every t- every TV show you turn on, somebody's, oh, I'm going to an AA meeting tonight. Yeah. Good for you. Okay. Um, but, you know, we, people have to actually search us out. And on the way to searching for us, they find other things like smart recovery. They might find your book. Um, the, there's women for sobriety. There's several abstinence-based approaches. And I think that a lot of the people that are searching that want to abstain, they are drifting perhaps to smart recovery and the people that want to do control drinking are drifting over to our program. So I think there's, uh, you know, a real self-selection That's really involved. Cool. I mean, I get, you know, like I said, I get letters from readers all the time. And I'd say about maybe 30% are people who, um, a lot of people who read my book are just ready, I think, to quit. And so they end up just, you know, being done with it and being really happy about it. Um, but I think about 30%, they're just really ready to take back control and drink on occasion. And they, they drink on occasion, and they're really happy about it. And I think that, for me, is the most important thing. I have, you know, most of my friends are still drinkers and stuff. And um, at first they're like, oh, well, you're going to be judging me for my drinking. And I was like, never, not in a million years. For me, I felt an internal division about my drinking. I felt cognitive dissonance. I was at war with myself. I wanted to be drinking less than I was, and I couldn't find a place of peace. And I think no matter where you fall on the continuum, whether it's drinking, you know, one a night or, you know, a few times a week or wherever it is for you, if you find peace at that level, that's what it's all about. And, I mean, honestly, if, if you find peace drinking in excess and that's what you're happy about, then fine, like, fine, like, who's to say that that's not a good decision for you? I think that the book um, that I wrote is really when you don't have peace about where you are at, you know, wherever it is, it can help you kind of reunite your conscious and unconscious mind and kind of overcome that internal division to where you do have peace. And if you find peace in moderate drinking, that's amazing. That's incredible. Phenomenal. Well Mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's, that's, I'm just, I'm equally as thrilled with those letters as I am with the letters about people who find peace giving it completely up. Because for me, um, I really think it's about finding a place in yourself where you're happy with yourself. Because once you're happy with yourself, and once you can look in the mirror and not be frustrated every morning about what you did the night before, the whole world opens up. You know, then you can start to really live out your purpose in this life, and you can really start to make good decisions in any every other area of your life. And guess what? By the way, you're much nicer to your husband and your children. And, you know, you really become kind of more of the person you want to be because you found this level of peace. But I think equally, if you're abstaining and you're just patting yourself on the back for abstaining, but you're not at peace about it, I mean, you're going to be grumpy. And I've run into a lot of those people kind of in some chat rooms and stuff who – yeah, you know, they get the gold star, according to them, every day for not drinking, but, man, are they pissed off about it. And 
man, are they <laughs> taking out that anger on the rest of the world? And, and for me, I just kind of say, well, doesn't seem like you really found peace. And I guess for me, that's just what it's about, is, is really finding the place where you feel good about yourself and you can look in your own mirror and say, yes, I am doing what makes me happy. And wherever that is, live and let live, you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, especially if you're online, you can find some really mean-ass trolls. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, are you an alcoholic? Um, excuse me, we don't do that in our group. You know, I have to I have to ban uh, people. Well, I don't have to ban a lot of people, but I have to ban this about one person a month because they just act like an ass, like, I have all the answers. And are you an alcoholic? And it's like, no, you don't have all the answers, and we don't want your bullshit because nobody – in our group, it, nobody tells anybody else what to do. Everybody decides for themselves. And that goes back to what you were asking and, you know, we ask people, what works best for you? Does quitting work better than uh, controlling? Does controlling work better than quitting? Uh, which is easier. And, you know, a lot of people weigh it up and they will say, you know, it's easier to quit. And other people weigh it up and say, it's easier for me to control it, you know, and put someone up yeah. on it. But everybody's different. Yeah, and I think I think it's true. I mean, I found it easier to quit. And it's mainly because I don't I don't want to do it anymore. Like I don't have a desire for it, so I figure, well, what's the point then, you know? But but I equally think that if I did have a desire for it, if I really wanted to be drinking and I was finding myself in a place where I was putting myself more or less on an alcohol diet, like um depriving myself of something I wanted to do, I, I'm just not I'm I'm kind of a hedonist at heart. I hate to admit it, but I would find that really difficult and I I think I would make myself really miserable and in that instance I think absolutely then controlling it and allowing myself, you know, cheat days on my diet, if you will, would, would definitely be where I found felt good about it. So yeah, I think it's it's so wrong for anybody to say what's right for any other person because we're all on this journey and it really breaks my heart. I'm relatively new to the scene, you know, the recovery scene and the um, thing, and I just kind of wrote my own book on my own journey and was in my own world, and, and here I am. Um, but the fact that there is division, it's it's so sad because this is a problem that is so big, and there's so many people that struggle with it, and we are focused, you know, <laughs> on um, – we can't infight, I guess. You know, the, everybody needs to be just kind of saying, like, look – you know, there's there's options and there's solutions, and we, we just can't be fighting with ourselves really on this. If we're going to be taking this message of um, healing and finding peace with substance and overcoming addiction, you know, inviting is just so heartbreaking. And I was so surprised to find it, but it does exist. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, we are out of time, so I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. Okay, everybody, we will see you all next week, and we will be talking about hip sobriety. Thanks, everyone, and good night.